You are listening to The Worlding Podcast, where we explore the relationship of how we are both, shaping and being shaped by our surroundings. The podcast traces interconnections by inviting each episode's guest to pass on the mic to someone who has influenced their world. And now, here's your host, dance artist Renee Schadler. Hello friends. Today we travel to Tel Aviv in Israel to continue our seventh string figure with my guest, Natal Igor Dobkin, a performance artist, facilitator, and adjunct professor in the Department of Gender Studies at Ben Gion University. He they was recommended by last episode's guest, Zinzi Buchanan, and today we continue that conversation, focusing on queering, slow transitions, and asking what it is to be between binary notions of gender. Thanks so much for chatting with us today, Igor. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. To begin, I love to ask guests where they're recording from in this very moment and how you're being shaped by your surroundings, whether it's the light or what your feet are touching in this moment. I'm sitting in a space that doesn't normally belongs to me. Uh, it's a friend's studio. It's pretty dark because of it, but you can see from the curtain a little bit of light entering and it's kind of um, gives it a lot of volume to, to that little light that enters. There's kind of um, fake grass carpet and my bare feet are squeezing it and imagining a bit that I'm in the outdoors and there's something sticky around, but it's a nice kind of stickiness. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, <laughs> that stickiness. It's, um, yeah, it's very visceral, actually. <laughs> I'd love to also transport listeners back to a few weeks ago when we met in another surrounding for the first time in a coffee shop in Berlin. Mm -hmm. And when we arrived, they were checking Corona passes because you needed to be vaccinated to sit in the coffee shop. And you passed over a Polish passport and they scanned your QR code on your phone. And there was this moment of me knowing you were Israeli, knowing that you had a different name in your passport, also being quite surprised that you had a Polish passport. And I really realized how many layers were in this moment of revealing such heavy documents that are so loaded with expectations on the body, on certain cultural information that you carry or not. Can you talk a little bit about that, how it is to be in these situations with so many contradictions, a little bit like the plastic grass that actually is plastic. It's not grass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how I would describe it, but it's definitely part of my daily life experience. Sometimes it's um, kind of transparent to me or to others. And sometimes I really physically feel it, but there's some kind of uh, junctions where before and after everything is happening normally, but yeah, there's a, some, some kind of checkpoint that something needs to be revealed 
and I need to prove myself in a way, or there's kind of an imposter syndrome coming up just to have yeah, a cup of coffee, for example, for our moment in the coffee shop. Yeah, and I, I realized it became like a, a life skill that I trained myself. Specifically with the COVID pass, I, I carry two apps, two COVID apps on my phone. One have my uh, passport name, as you mentioned, Natalie Dobkin, the name I was born with. And the other one is my current name, Natalie Igor Dobkin. So when I want to uh, be feeling more real me, but still challenge the surrounding. I put out the 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 app that says Natalie Gordopkin. But when I wanna just obey and not risk anything, I put out the one that is um, the same as my passport. Uh, yeah, but the, the, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of clashes that are constant happening all the time and. Uh, they became part of me, they're shaping me, and um, they're changing also all the time. I'm on testosterone for one and a half year now, so some things became more easy. I'm passing better, obviously, so for example, in Israel, when you speak Hebrew, the second person is gendered. So when you say you, it's gendered. So I realized that I completely pass in the street. So if I go to um, a, a coffee shop or if I want to buy a beer in a kiosk, I don't need to. Uh, they, they normally don't ask for my ID because now I pass older, finally. <laughs> I've been 38. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it became a bigger barrier uh, yeah, holding my old name on my passport still and traveling in an airport, for example, with a beard. Um, so the 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 gap became wider, I would say. Mm. And you also choose he, they pronouns, which is something I haven't come across before and I'm really curious to learn more about. How has that been a part of your journey as well? deciding on pronouns that really share and embody you in the world in relation to others and expectations they hold around pronouns? I mean, you use the word journey and I definitely relate to it because I don't see it as a, yeah, as a fixed decision. And I don't know what what's my pronoun going to be next year, but I'm trying to... I think that we all are changing all, all the time. It's not a it's not a, a single uh, singly related to trans people, uh, just because, uh, for example, we aging, and uh, there's also a culture context, uh, a language context. So again, if, for example, in Hebrew, there's no they, and some non-binary people. Uh, either used mixed gender, so in one sentence you would go back and forth from male and female, or there's some just speaking a certain gender and go with it. And I think for me, uh, identifying as non-binary trans, I, I would say for the, in the last eight years, uh, it was very important to present the language I came from. So in English, I was always he. But now with my transition passing so well, passing even as cis men, uh, I started to add the they into it. 
Uh, although it's not a strict day, it's mostly, yeah, you just, we started this show now and you presented me. It's important for me that the listeners that can see me right now uh, understand the context that I'm coming from. So again, going back to the the COVID pass, in uh, from moments, even though uh, to pre- to be transparent about your transness, there's a certain risk, obviously, even could be in some matters life risk. It's also important for me to rebel and be present uh, by my existent and the trans-existent. Mm, it's incredibly layered. And it's interesting that in this podcast, looking at worlding and shaping and being shaped by our surroundings, there is constantly these codes. Like I feel really this moment also in the coffee shop and I know we're lingering on it a little bit, but it's really an example of daily life where there are barriers, there are thresholds created that you cross in certain ways and there is the meeting of the external world in this time, the human expectations on what that means and what these documents mean and how you can be identified in group situations as well. There is kind of this comparison of, okay, you're in this box or that box. And then for this box, we have these rules. And for that box, we have these other rules. And I know that Mm. in trans communities and also heteronormative communities, there are also certain guidelines like, um, I'm heteronormative and I know with my partner now we're in our mid thirties and there is that, okay, are there children coming? You've just moved in together. Like, will you get married first? How are those Mm -hmm. processes, I would say, or those life expectations within the trans community? That's such a good question, unfortunately, (laughs) because I have quite of a conflict with it. I find myself... Uh, with the instinct, I would say not the trans community. I, I would talk about the queer community more because I think that um, this word queer became such a cliche and rightfully so. Like I, I'm trying to avoid using it even because for me hearing the word queer 20 something years ago was very refreshing and was like, what is this? Where is this? Where is this events happening? Who's these people? Where can I find it? Whatever. And now it became pretty clear-ish. And there's, uh, yeah, there's, there's certain guidelines. There's cer- certain scenes. There's sub-queer scenes. And I think that in the beginning with the whole um, uh, word queer by itself was supposed to be something that is undefined. And I think that in the moment that it defined itself, the word queer, it died. Um, So yeah, there is guidelines in queer slash trans communities, but I'm trying to rebel on it as well as I said before, I'm trying to rebel on the outside heteronormative society. Again, also inside my own uh, tribe, I'm also trying to do the same. Um, because I want to find new ways. I want to allow myself to ask questions. I want to hear other people's questions. Um, But at the same time, it's not this kind of like, I'm throwing it all out the window. Uh, I'm trying to build from whatever already exists, the the critic um, 
theory that exists around transness now um, to come out for something new, more questions, more challenges. Because um, just going back to the basic, if there's a trans person coming to, for example, a trans event and they are new, they even they're not even sure that they're trans yet or whatever it means. And they don't know the rules yet. So they don't know yet what to say or not, what not to say, how to behave or not to behave in some, um, in, in any proper way. They might be kicked out after two minutes from that venue. And that person could be someone that is really unprivileged, that uh, doesn't have any other surrounding, anywhere to go. And with, in that sense, I think that there needs to be some kind of um, uh, thinking time within uh, queer, trans, radical communities to see how we structure some guidelines because we are rebellioning the outside surrounding the heteronormative, but at the same time, how we also can criticize ourselves from the inside and keep transitioning ourselves and moving. I think if there's strict guidelines, we're actually not trans because we are not in movement. Part of being trans is always moving, if it makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's interesting how these spaces create knowledge that then comes with an expectation to embody that knowledge and be aware of that knowledge when you enter. And so then it creates a barrier in some way for those outside. And in a way, I totally understand in terms of white, privileged cis bodies that don't respect or are not able to relate or not willing to relate more um, to be precise on that, like there are choices involved. Um, but then the people outside that want to get in, how do they know what's inside when they're outside? You know, it becomes bubbles within bubbles. Exactly. Have you found some strategies for that in your work around gender that you could share with listeners and myself? I'm actually, I'm really challenged by it. This is the main thing that I think that I'm challenged by it. Uh, when I have a regular uh, queer performance workshop I give in, in Tel Aviv and it's open to everyone. So there's a certain mix of people coming, some with a performative background, but not not coming even at all from the, the queer world, the, the queer scene. Some people are trans people that are never performed. And uh, some people, as we said before, that are trans, but not part of the community. They don't know the language yet. So we start with some earthquakes, you know, and, and I'm trying to to see how these earthquakes are also okay and um, someone better than me said that conflict is not abuse. So, so try to see how we can all live together in it, but at the same time be accountable and take responsibility. Um, I'm not... Um, I guess I have an internal dilemma between being like very 
rough line that this is like zero tolerance towards obviously uh, transphobia, racism, and so on. And at the same time, understanding how some, sometimes people using certain language because they don't know, as you said, is also related to how the world puts down certain communities and doesn't give them certain access to certain places. And if I'm the person in the, at the door, for example, the, the, the workshop by itself could be a gate for something, I can't ignore also the context of the world and where they come from. And I need to find a certain balance. I really like to watch different facilitators and their techniques and also see hosts of uh, venues for, like, example, like drag nights and the, the MCs, how they act. And I, I'm really, I, I, I can divide more or less when I see that there's a host or a facilitator that is responsible to the space and it's one that is saying things uh, in, a, in a way to protect themselves mostly from uh, staying as uh, appropriate and 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 um, cover themselves as possible. You understand what I, what I mean? What I'm saying? Mm, mm, totally. And how do you facilitate spaces? How is that for you when you host a workshop or meet with someone for the first time? I think I'm trying to first start with the starting point that I don't know and I can't assume uh, and that I also have inside of me uh, internal racism, transphobia, even though I'm trans and so on and so on. And at the same time, uh, try to be responsible and um, take as much accountability on the space. So I'm not kind of like putting myself as like, Oh, I'm another person in the room. I don't know anything. No, I invited everyone. I'm responsible for everyone's well-being. Um, but at the same time, I'm trying to move us from a place that we are all trying to figure out together. Uh, what are we doing here? How are we talking to each other? How and if we're touching each other? And how we are dealing with... Uh, with things that are not pleasant to us. Uh, so it's an actual lab. And for me, each time, I'm doing the workshop now for 10 years, each time it's a learning experience and each time the the group itself, including me inside of it, changes the, the, the rules and the questions in it, obviously. Uh, so this is actually something that is very important for me as a facilitator, that there's never like one way that I do the thing. Uh, and I'm always trying to figure out together. Because I think that this is what I'm also is important for me in real life. We, in the end, uh, workshop is a lab for daily life. And I'm trying to understand through this lab how I can be in real life, how I can go to a coffee shop and feel comfortable to take out my passport. And also how can I be accountable for people around me that obviously have uh, more difficulties in getting access to certain places. Mm. It really reminds me of 
something I've been practicing recently in terms of thinking I don't know or I know in relation to a question to I'm figuring this out and we're figuring this out together. And it's such a small shift, but also in an ongoing series that started to connect with welding, moving across thresholds, which I know you'll be a part of in the coming months and I will tell listeners more about at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. There is always that moment when thinking about perceived limitations and how they can be transformed into thresholds of potential, how they can allow us to meet in a space that is perhaps unclear, that there is this question often that can't be answered in that moment. And it's not about yes, no, again, a binary answer of male, female, yes, no, go stop but we're figuring this out and all of a sudden it releases this potential of failure Mm. because everything's in process so there isn't this moment of I've invited a trans woman to facilitate she might have a mental breakdown during the workshop and then the workshop's failed because I've curated a workshop with somebody that is fragile in this moment but The space is figuring this out. The space and the people within it, the light within it, the fabrics within it, the fountain we choose to have in the corner to just allow some background music that isn't coded with um, new age tones or, you know, club music that might trigger something. So how is it all working together to allow things to be in process and they can be difficult processes and they can be unclear processes but we're figuring this out, you know, it's such a, it's beautiful. It's such a relief I find. Um, and it's something I'm practicing because I, I have that moment of anxiety when I think, Oh my God, this person's going to have a breakdown. And am I responsible? Cause I've created this situation, but then I'm not cause it's part of living, you know, and I think within these levels of facilitation or participation, there are certain roles that also come with expectation. You know, like you said, you're responsible for the space as a facilitator, but actually you just have a response ability, so something very affirmative to shift because maybe you have more knowledge of that space. You've been in it before, so you have certain techniques that you've built over time. Mm-hmm. So this is something I'm playing with at the moment, and, uh, yeah, it just really resonated you just explained what I, I had difficulty to explain before about the role of the MC or the host or the facilitator that with the example that you just gave, if you just like panic over someone that you quote unquote didn't care good enough uh, in your own workshop, then it becomes all about yourself. And so when the facilitator or the host are moving only from the place of what is appropriate and not appropriate. They're not being accountable. But uh, when we are open for mistakes, not from a place of like, I don't give a damn. Actually, I I extra give a damn. But as you said, I'm quoting you now, I'm figuring this out. So I don't know, but at the same time, I'm doing my best to learn together. Uh, And I think this uh, is a very important side of that uh, um, little balance game. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't know, we're open, 
we're learning, we're asking questions, but at the same time, we're being accountable. We're, we're, being, uh, we're taking responsibility and we are trying to know at the same time. Mm, it's progressive. Yeah, it's not that I don't know I step out or like I don't know it failed, but mm-hmm. it's progressive and it's moving forward. It's figuring it out. And maybe it's moving back. Maybe figuring it out means going back to 10 minutes ago when the space felt safer and what was enabling the space in that moment to feel safe. Can that be recreated or where are we now? I love it. I love what you're saying. <laughs> Let's be in the space together, Igor. Yeah, we will be. <laughs> you can find out more in a minute, listeners, I promise. Um, I want to dive into slow transitions because I feel like we're hovering around that at the moment. And this is a big part of your research, how mm. to transition slowly. Yeah, it's basically I'm trying to explore in the last year and a half, I guess it happened, uh, parallel to my uh, hormonal process. Uh um, what happens when we are actually uh, not in the non-binary? We are trying to um, achieve a goal. So thinking about any linear process, such as gender transition, such as but gender transition in the sense, kind of making a game with yourself and saying, I'm trans and in the end I want to be this and this and that let's say I want to be a man in the end okay or um, uh, other linear processes such as uh, uh, immigration so in the end I fully immigrate from x to y so of course we know uh, in our radical surrounding that these things doesn't need to be either or so you can be in a relationship and it doesn't need to take a certain shape and you can transition but you don't have to achieve something in that but I'm actually offering a game that I I think in my mind in a very linear way there's a starting point and there's an ending point but then instead of being in the non-binary what happens if I just take it very slowly and what's the impact of it for myself and for my surrounding, how it is rebellion, what does it change within myself and what does it change for my surrounding? And again, sorry, coming back to the to the coffee shop example, <laughs> uh, because, you know, I have a beard now and if my name in my passport was, uh, um, I don't know, like a dude's name, then I the, the situation would be transparent. And then there wasn't any learning situation happening for any of the sites. Examining what happens if I'm not rushing at the moment to change my name in my documents or have a top surgery and so on and so on and so on. Mm. So actually allowing the multiplicity to be there in the moment and in that moment you take the discomfort, I feel, or the person reading the passport and thinks, okay, I'm meeting with a woman, but I don't see what I associate with a woman in front of me. How is that? Like this moment, I want to go into the skiz. I know it's a Deleuzean term, Mm -hmm. but really this like schism of expectation and normative neurotypical behavior that then isn't met 
is that exhausting going through that every moment you go to buy a beer or enter a venue or you know because I can choose to be with that or step out of that whereas you're living that so I think that would be my question in terms of um ways that that could be softened perhaps from people that are in different positions so i guess that uh, to be very honest in the most simple way one of the reasons why i made the decision to start taking testosterone is kind of to make some things easier for me because i actually don't know anything else but since some since i remember myself um i was uh, misgender for whatever side you want to see it as misgender either be called as a boy or a girl whatever it like says and dealing with this constant clash uh, going in public toilets and going to a, a super gender um, uh, situations such as uh, weddings uh, weddings in Israel are very gendered and what you wear and where you at and uh, or airports uh, so I'm actually used to this electro, small electroshocks and when I say lecture exactly. story, it's for myself and for the others. So even if nothing happens, uh, let's say I was going into the, until, maybe you wouldn't believe it because you saw me recently, but I was going to the women's toilet, uh, public toilet until last July. And then there was something, I, I flew to France and I was like, okay, I'm going to try to go in the men's toilet. And I realized that I didn't understand how I look because since then, Nobody cares about me. I entered to the men's toilet. Nobody second look. And I was used to having a constant stares or remarks for all of my life, even as a child, not even before ever, uh, adolescence. So um, it's actually the radical choice of having uh, a beard now uh, with the name Natalie on the passport in some other uh, means uh, senses it's it's actually made some things easier for me and and I have to say that it's not so easy for me to to feel that because I feel kind of um, in some moment that I'm betraying my community members and that I'm not part of the struggle because now I'm in some kind of club the the cis club the men's club the heteronormative club or i'm uh, at least i'm transparent in some situations uh, in a way that feels kind of unfair like i need to, to um, i i i missed the, the electricity shots but it as i said before it extended more the risk so when when there's a moment of a uh, discovery reveal happened it's more risky i'll give you an example uh, a week and a half ago i was uh, in a hotel in the desert of israel and there was a sauna there it was the weekend it was very traditional families very everything was very gendered and in one moment i decided to take my shirt off i didn't do uh, i have small breasts but i still have breasts and I decided to lie down on the bench. Uh, so my breast was uh, not being seen so much. And in one point, uh, a, a guy entered to the, the sauna and he was like, hello. And I was like, hello. 
And he just sat there next to me, me being like this. And then he left. And it was very obvious that he didn't see it, you know, it, whatever it means. He stayed there and he left because he had enough, but he definitely read me as a cis man, even though I was uh, topless. Uh, I mean, my uh, the the when you take tea, the 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 fat division change and the muscle structure change. So the 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 upper body does look different, and it looks more male, quote unquote. But still, you know, I still have breasts. But uh, so I was taking a risk. That that all to say that I was taking a big risk in that situation. Uh, uh, in one way. And in the other way, I could allow myself more than I could have done before taking testosterone. So it kind of um, stretches both sides of passing and not passing um, uh, the transition with hormones. So it's really this line is how I understand, like the line of what's possible moves and then there is that moment when the body assimilates the change Mm -hmm. because also the changes they're created by something external right like taking testosterone or taking estrogen is something entering your system which is changing the system and then the system needs to realize the change this gap of okay my body is different now I can enter the toilet, but actually you could always enter the toilet. Like there was a fiction around that of women aren't allowed in. It's like, Hmm. okay, I actually, I don't know if I can share this, but I will because I hope my mom doesn't listen to the podcast. But there is a moment when um, I live in Berlin now and I'm from Australia, which has a very different association around gender. Like Australia, I would say, is still very heteronormative. We have male and female toilets, whereas in Berlin there's a lot of unisex toilets, but there's still a urinal. And I uh, sometimes go dancing and the cubicles are full, like in clubs. Mm-hmm. And if I need to go, I've taught myself to pee in the urinal so I can, like, I'm a dancer, so <laughs> I have strong um, ligaments in my knees and I can balance and pee my in the God. urinal. I'm so jealous. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. Maybe I can teach you. Come over. I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> or listeners, you know, send an email. That's a workshop. I want this workshop yeah. <laughs> in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting because... I mean, at some moment, I just need to go to the toilet and I'm like, well, the guys can do it. So can I. I know how to. Why not? But there is that moment where somebody like I've had people look over like men and be like, wow, that's so hot. Like that isn't the point at all. Like I don't need to be objectified or -hmm. someone go like, wow, that's so gross. I can't handle it. Ah, and leave. And it's that moment of like they hold the preconception and the fiction of only people with penises can pee in the urinal. But actually the body is otherwise. Like my body with a vagina can pee in the urinal, but it's who holds that fiction and when it affects you or not. And they are very slight lines and they change with each individual. And it's a practice, I guess, of how you choose to be and how receptive you are to what's around you and the energies of other humans or the energies of other things. Like this podcast is very much in this space of 
more than human, uh, thinking about also the urinal in that situation. Like, mm -hmm. it's fine. <laughs> Can I learn with the metal? It's like, sure. <laughs> Bring it on, you know? Um, yeah, lots of layers. <laughs> Many layers and yeah, speaking of object, this, all those objects in the in the public toilet needs to host us, host our bodies, and the 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 normativity of like what's normative in the body, like because in one sense you can say that now I'm passing more as normative physically, in where in the in the surrounding of the public toilet in the men's toilet, I really pass well, so it fits. But actually with the cis codes it's pre-hormones i was feeding more to the space of the toilet because uh all my body organs were at one cis you know uh now there's certain clashes so the the the, the gap between the illusion of what seems to 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 be and what is actually exist is uh it's a mind game and uh, it's a matter of per uh, perception, you know? Absolutely. I'd love also to go a little bit into your research around the detour and how that is, because also now thinking about going to toilets and using them in a way that is pre-described, like kind of giving into the fiction that's being created around them, mm -hmm. or detouring and using things in different ways. What is that for you? What is the detour? Well, the detour is also, uh, it's, it's another question, speaking about questions. So it's something, it's a subtopic uh, under slow transitions uh, that I'm investigating at the moment uh, because I'm looking, searching for strategies of how to slow down things. So now I'm around detouring. It's a way to look at aims, different aims or chores that we have around us in our daily life and not uh, to think about how you suspend them, not in the sense that you're doing it in slow motion, but that you're doing something else before you do the actual thing. And that's the detour. And I think that when we met, I gave you an example uh, of uh, Google Map that um, when I, let's say, I want to go to your place, so you tell me your address and I, I write it down, and Google offers me a path. And the path is usually uh, what Google thinks is the shortest way to get from where I'm at and where you are. Who said that the, the shortest way is what I want to have? What if... I want to have the, the, the path that have the most uh, nature around, more scenery. Or the maybe it is a short, but it's actually not safe for me. And what does it mean it's safe for me? For different people, obviously, the question of safe, safeness in the public space, in the outdoor, is different. And uh, yeah, and if, if I go through a path that is feels unsafe for me, it's probably also going to take me longer. It's meant to examine how we can gain different things or experience different things when we're not taking the, um, the route that uh, a capitalistic society aims for us. 
And we also, we internalize it, internalize it by ourselves. In a way, it's a form of activism, actually. Yeah, but also could be self-activism, you know? Because it could be, it's also an, actually a, a, an offer for, like, you know, we kind of program to do things in a certain way. Efficiency. There's a lot of uh, uh, keywords that exist inside of us that we are not even aware of that actually not always obviously makes things actually efficient and uh, it makes us, it it's influenced us, it makes us become a, a certain people because of certain ways we're doing things. And I think that taking a detour could uh, open up a, a certain way of unlearning what's this automatic thing that we are doing our automatic way that is inherited inside of us. It's so funny when these propositions come forward, I often have this process of assimilating. So maybe listeners are also doing this of thinking, okay, how do I do that in my own life? How am I practicing that? And when I think about taking a detour, I'm like, oh, that's lovely. But then at the same time, often I leave the house and I need to be somewhere else and I just go where I need to go. Like enabling myself to take a detour would mean leaving earlier or making appointments that don't have a set beginning time. How to practice these things because in a way it releases everything. Like how we physically move through the world, embodied knowledge is what we're practicing that then informs our mind and makes things very efficient. Like I need to know what gender someone is. I need to know where I can go to the toilet. I need to know mm. what language they speak with what passport they hand over. But actually allowing the figuring out, as we've been talking about, it takes a certain time and it takes a certain, yeah, slowing down, as you say, yeah, and also not always we we know what's the we're supposed to do many times and what's the efficient thing to do, uh, but we're not always doing it from different reasons. Again, capitalistic society really urges to be efficient and productive, and it actually puts a lot of anxiety into all of us. And the, there's a you know there's the destruction destructive version of uh, detouring is um, oh my god I forgot the word now <laughs> to procrastinate yes yes exactly so we are doing this anyway and the detour is actually a, a proposal about by choice doing something that is not the shortest or direct uh, thing to do but that gives us a different view of things and allow us to learn something and to gain even something. Even if we want to look at it from a capitalistic perspective, uh, we can also gain from detouring. Maybe I, I, I'm thinking maybe I should give an example. Please. I, I, I'm thinking about like simple missions that I have tendency to delay. For example, I've, when we met, you gave me an example about postponing uh, listening to a voice message for a certain reason. I also have the same thing, that, that email I need to send to my landlord. And it's tests that, you know, 
they take one minute in the end of the day. And we put so much energy with um, delaying it and from a, and, and, and then also internally punishing ourselves that we're not doing what we're supposed to do. Uh, but what about looking at that task of, let's say, yeah, sending that email to the landlord and say, okay, uh, I have the draft of it. <laughs> it's been one month. Everything is written down. I just need to pl- press send. Uh, but what if I decide that to send that email to the, to the landlord, I need one hour. In the end of the one hour, I will send the email. But before that, I'm going to... Uh, to a, a quest and I don't know what I'm going to do during that time. It might be quote unquote official things such as like calling my friends and saying, asking for their support and be like, um, can you just like hear me out why it's hard for me to, to write uh, him uh, email, da, da, da. But it also could be things that I've, I don't even know why I'm doing them. Uh, moving around in my living room, going for a walk outside, uh, taking a shower, uh, screaming into a pillow. I don't know. I really have no idea. I can also share one. I always yeah. really enjoy flowers. Like, I think my side uh, job or when I retire, I will be a florist. I just love it. So Mm. I always (laughs) like buy flowers or will like collect flowers. And Mm -hmm. whenever I feel myself becoming very short somehow or like too direct and losing the kind of body feeling of what I'm doing, often when you're writing emails or scheduling I will go around and like trim the flowers and change the water or like organize which flower is closest to me or further away. And it's really interesting or taking out, like I have a balcony garden Mm -hmm. and I prune like the herbs so new herbs can grow. And it's really these like um, physicality of pottering with the hands. So just moving things around. I find incredibly good for the nervous system. It just rebalances me and then I can go back. But for sure, my partner calls it procrastinating. He's like, Renee, sit down, do what you need to do. And I guess it's a detour. Like I'm getting there via the herbs and the flowers and wiping down surfaces. I like to wipe down surfaces. It's very interesting what to release the pressure of that. It's not less important than the functionality Exactly. And you're changing your view uh, 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 over the same thing you're doing. So the voice of your partner is a voice that I really know. It's very familiar, I think, to all of us that, that yeah, there's, there's always this ha-ha-ha joke. I'm doing everything but what I'm supposed to do. But who said that this is not part of doing what I'm supposed to do? So if I go back to the examples of linear processes, so gender transitioning, it's not only that I'm not doing a top surgery because, um, how do you say the word again? Prospectoration? Sorry, it's my bad English. Ah, procrastinating. Thank you. So it's not, not, not only that I'm scared and that's why I'm not doing it. It's also because I want to take time to look, to look at my chest changing now and experience it with myself and maybe I decide in the end that I also don't want to do a top surgery Uh, so it's not necessarily a bad delay 
it's a, just a different view of things. As part of this podcast, I'm inviting guests to share an embodied invitation that listeners can experience. Is there a way that we can experience the detour with you now? Well, I will try, <laughs> as we said before. <laughs> you will figure it out. We will figure it out together. <laughs> yes, let's figure it out all together. I invite all of us. So let's think together. We can close our eyes because I think it does help. And that's uh, the adventures of having a podcast that you just listen. Um and take out the most dominant uh, sense, which is the sight. And imagine some spot we want to be in. It could be a spot that is close to where we are right now. So if we are listening to it on our headphones and we are on the way to a friend's house, but we know that on the way there's a spot that we just crave to stay at. Or it could be if we are home and there's a place that we haven't been for a while or just feels nice and safe at the moment. So we pick a spot and then we decide on a certain time structure, uh, pre-decide, so we kind of release ourselves from thinking about it when it's gonna end. So let's say if I'm biking at the moment and I know it's going to take me 10 minutes to arrive to my friend's house or if I'm in my car and I'm supposed to be home in two minutes I'm deciding on an extra time um, let's say I decide on 10 minutes or half an hour maybe next time I practice it two hours and then I'm going on a detour and the detour is the unknown so it could be moving from the unknown that is related to a need that I don't maybe know why I have this need. If I'm biking, I have the need to, to go somewhere downhill and feel the wind. Uh, it could be stepping out of my bicycle and just sitting down for a second or anything that comes to our mind. So we don't plan, we don't think, but we do do, and we do let our physical senses guide us in a way that we trust them and they know. And we also trust our time structure. So we know that by the time that this times end, I will arrive to my destination. And then in the end, I sit and I don't know, I don't know what's the difference. Maybe I could have just arrived directly to my spot or maybe something else happened. So I'm closing my eyes again and I'm trying to feel what comes out. I would like to do it now when we finish this. <laughs> Absolutely. I was just doing it with my eyes closed, but I haven't arrived yet, but we can continue and I can go back to it. <laughs> At the moment, 
I don't know if Berliners are listening. There's a beautiful park, um, Volkspark Friedrichshain, and I'm around uh, the fountain. It's a stone fountain with lots of like uh, sculptures of fairy tale creatures. Um, yeah, and there's a little turtle. <laughs> 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 but it is different. It's different to physically go there. Um, so please, listeners, um, I encourage you to physicalize that after this listening experience, as I will. Thank you so much for chatting with us. It's been really beautiful. Thank you for inviting. It's been such a pleasure. Recently, there's been a really wonderful crossover between the Welding podcast and an experience-based knowledge lab that I'm curating called Moving Cross Thresholds. And if you're a regular listener, you would have picked up that Ali Bishop recently led a Moving Cross Thresholds session and Sigma Zacharias. And I'm very excited that Natal Igor will also join us on the 26th of May within that format. So Moving Across Thresholds is an hour and a half hybrid lab that happens every second Thursday. And Igor is going to be facilitating a session around queering and slow facilitation. So it's really a moment to experience what it is to be in a room together. I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Igor. Same. Thank you so much. And thanks for everyone who was listening to us. Mm -hmm. It's really been nice to be here. <laughs> that brings us to the end of our seventh string figure. In the next episode, we will return to Berlin to speak with an artist and researcher about what it is to be welding and shaping and being shaped by our surroundings. Thank you for listening to The Worlding Podcast. Gefördert durch die Beauftragte der Bundesregierung für Kultur und Medien im Programm Neustart Kultur. Hilfsprogramm des Tanzen des Dachverband Tanz Deutschland.